Hi, wonderful people. Welcome to Whole Architect, the podcast that focuses on conversations that reveal what makes the creative, professional, and personal lives of architects feel whole. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nico Rucker. Looking back, architecture was something that was always a part of my life, whether that was through things like Minecraft or drawing out the floor plans of my house before I knew what a floor plan even was. I also love to learn languages and to teach kids, and I especially love working with elementary schoolers. And right now, I'm trying to become a part of the architecture profession, but in a way that gives meaning to all of my passions. Today, I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with Sierra Bainbridge. Sierra is the Senior Principal and Managing Director at Mass Design Group, and has been with Mass since 2008. I first discovered Mass when I came across Michael Murphy's TED Talk, Architecture That's Built to Heal. And after listening, I knew that that was the kind of architecture that I wanted to do. I then heard Sierra talk about her journey through architecture, starting with the story of her mom, which I hope we can talk a little bit about today. And I knew that she was someone I wanted to reach out to and continue that conversation with. How's it going? Good, how are you? I'm in my car because there's lots of hammering in my house. <laughs> no worries, yeah, no worries. Hopefully this will work. I'm super excited to be talking to you. I'm a little nervous. Um, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Being in architecture school, you hear a lot about what architects do, you know, like, like the actual buildings that they build and, and they talk a lot about the process of those buildings, but you don't really get to hear a lot about who they actually are as people outside of it, what influences them to, to design in the ways that they design. Yeah, it's just such a cool project to, to be working on. It feels like such a good time because everybody's gotten so much more laid back about just jumping on Zoom or like yeah. chatting or having, it's, you know, the number of talks and accessibility, I feel like, has increased so much. So kind of speaking of like being laid back and, and having much more accessibility with, with Zoom and everything, I watched a GSD webinar with you and Lisa Switkin. I think mm -hmm. this was like last fall. And you talked a lot about how your mom influenced you while growing up. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your mom or anyone else who inspired you as a kid? So I grew up in a really rural area. Um, and I would say my mom is a piece of the puzzle, but I would say my dad is as well. And so I, I'm going to just kind of like start way back in the story. When my mom was pregnant with me, our house burned down. And I was about, I don't know how, she was somewhere, I don't know, halfway through pregnancy. And it was the 70s. It was like, you know, it seemed totally normal that, well, we'll just move into the barn and renovate that as we bring up our child. So they did that. They like moved into the barn, started renovating it, um, which had been prior to that was a cow barn. And my dad, you know, he was a filmmaker. And so I think the kind of like putting together of visual sequences of seeing things through a particular eye, I think bled into a little bit of the way that I would see things. Um, and how you kind of create space, but I think also living in a place that was unfinished. 
I think made it implied that there is this potential to change everything around us. There was nothing that was like final, like my bedroom changed like three times growing up. And like, I could watch the whole house change before me as I was growing up. And then on moving on from that, my dad, like, I think he'd renovated, renovated three or four houses, you know, before I was 20. And, and similarly with my mom at this much larger scale of building a highway. So she, you know, needed work in this kind of, um, growing up or now living in a rural area she's actually from dc and kind of had moved during this kind of like hippie free love time to a commune in the neighborhood met my dad um but now she had a kid and like needed to find work and so she there was a i think i mentioned in the other interview there was an executive order signed by jimmy carter in 1978 i believe that required that any any projects that had federal funding had to have a minimum of six percent women employed on site and so this, there was a I-88, which is a massive interstate going, that was connecting, not massive, but an interstate connecting Albany with kind of Southwest New York state through really rural areas. And as I was researching this, just to learn more about this project that my mom was engaged with, was really interesting to look at how actually kind of progressive and thoughtful they were about building this highway, that it was trying to connect and make better opportunities for livelihoods for you know, people who are living in a really rural areas where agriculture might not be able to support them super long-term. Um, and this was all in, again, in the fifties and sixties when the interstate systems were all being set up. Um, and so anyway, this, this executive order was signed. And, and so my mom was one of those that was hired. And, and so it's something that I think about often in terms of like the challenges that she must've felt. And, and also in the research learned that today there are less than 3% of women employed in construction work. And so that didn't really work. And also, you know, there are just so many challenges that women face just going to work and day-to-day -day being the only women on job sites. And, and so I think about the kind of luxury that I have to have chosen the work that I do and to be able to even choose within the work, like what, what aspects I want to be doing. And then even obviously like to be able to work with Mass Design Group and um, and do the type of work that we're doing, which is really bringing design directly to communities that haven't necessarily had, had access to it before. And then I think the other piece is the, is the super large scale of the highway and seeing the landscape shift and move in that way. And so on the one hand, I had this house that was always in, in some mode of construction, but always really beautiful. Like my, my mom would always complain that we like lived in a museum because he would always like <laughs> place everything just so and like big blank empty like countertops and um, it didn't feel like that to me. It, it always just felt very calm and, and lovely. But, but I think on the scale of that and seeing that these things can change and can be built to suit something very specific like a family, but also that the landscape on this much larger scale also is shiftable. Um, and what does that do and how does that, that change over time? So I think those were both inspirations, but also just kind of like setting a kind of expectation of the ability to to shift our surroundings that I don't know that that we all have the opportunity to kind of see happen on a daily basis until we kind of get into the work. And then I think I don't know how this happened, but I ended up living on two or three intentional communities growing up. <laughs> um, partly because <laughs> my mom is like a searcher. She's always been searching for, you know, what is the meaningful reason that wh why are we here and and what kind of gives us meaning amongst each other and so I lived on a Sufi community while she was there for two or three years in upstate New York which was actually in a an old Shaker community so I was again living oh, this, wow. in this really beautiful 
very intentionally designed and built kind of physical surrounding that was also attached to like a theology. And then there was a Sufi community, which in it, which is Unitarian Universalist Sufism, which is about, I mean, the, the favorite thing that I remember is the very last thing that you do at every weekly mass or meeting would be to light a candle for those religions, both known and unknown to the world that hold off the light of um, truth and human dignity. And that's like always there. And so all of this is like blending in. And then I lived in another community learning to do glass blowing. And, um, and I, I just think that kind of intentionality of, and that, that community was a craft community. So they did glass blowing and ceramics and woodcraft. And then as well, they always had gardens. So it's like this intention to create a holistic life has been something that I've been able to observe in a couple of different ways. And I think maybe it's always been a question of how do we make our lives meaningful? And the only way to do that is to leave this place better than when we came in. And I don't think people necessarily make all their decisions that way. There's certainly a large group of people who don't, which is, I think, you know, what has gotten us to where we are today and, and being able to peer into some of these very intentional ways of living, I think made it feel plausible that we can make decisions like that, that we can make decisions that are responsible to people other than ourselves or our families or our friends, um, but, but to everyone. Yeah. I mean, you've had a lot of different experiences, like at a, at a very young age, you know, seeing and observing these different things. Did you know that you wanted to do architecture as like a kid? Cause you, you got your, your undergraduate degree in art and architectural history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you, it was, it's kind of similar to it, but you're not like, you weren't a practicing architect at that point. So what, what was that yeah, transition like? So I didn't know that I always want to be an architect at all. Um, in high school, I wanted to be a photographer. So I applied to all photography schools, including communication schools. And I got into all of them except for one. I applied to one liberal arts school. But it, I think at a certain point in that process of, you know, it's, it's always very stressful when you're you know, in 11th and 12th grade, you feel like you're making mm-hmm. this like major life decision. And on what basis am I making this? But I knew that what I, you know, what I just mentioned that our reason for being here is like much larger than ourselves. And, and I wasn't really, I was really interested in art photography. I wasn't, I I wasn't that interested in journalism, which actually could be super impactful. And it occurred to me that if, if that was what I was really motivated to do, what, what effect would that have? Like, if I was really, really good, maybe I might be able to be in a gallery or a museum and maybe one or 2% of the population would ever see that. Or maybe I could be more radical and project art Mm -hmm. on walls, but it still felt a bit isolated. So I kind of just took a leap and said, I really love that, but I'm going to go to the liberal arts college and see what else is out there. So I went to Smith Um, and they strangely have this teensy tiny architecture department inside of (laughs) a bit bachelor arts. And now they have a landscape department, but it is held within the architectural history department, which was amazing because I, so while I was taking like really, really basic introductory courses of like how to start drawing plans and like doing little projects, which was great and super fun. Also taking this amazing art history department and, and Helen Searing was there at the time who was an architectural historian and really focused on housing and also arts and crafts movement, which is, you know, kind of a really beautiful historical analogy to where we are now, this idea of like, you know, how do we bring design to everyone in their everyday? And how do we honor the work of artisans and labor in that process, um, which is 
kind of what William Morris's treatise is all about. And so she kind of had this, her, her, her interests were, were similar in that way and, and just kind of found their way through architectural history. And, and so that, that's where I determined, oh, well, it makes sense. Like I have a, you know, I have this ability to have some level of creativity, some kind of an eye that is effective and, and maybe there's a way to kind of bring that creativity and an eye to something that can be in service of others through housing. And so architecture made sense to me immediately. Mm-hmm. Once I found it, I'd also, I looked at, I was, you know, looking at teaching as a major or history as a major, um, but then architecture kind of brought all that together in a way. And everyone at the same time was also asking me, why don't you become an ar- landscape architect? It makes so much sense because I, I did landscaping in the summers to kind of pay for school uh-huh. for many years. I, I, oh, in the end, I did it for overall, like all the way through college and grad school for like 10 years. And my dad was a gardener and they're like, you know, you know, you know, every plant out there, why don't you do that? But I hadn't yet been exposed to landscape that also wasn't already serving a community that had access to design. So it was the woman who came and talked about it was talking about campuses, college campuses and things like that. And that to me also was still super, you know, like these these are things that already were designed when they were first created and for the most part, or at least Smith and others that mm-hmm. I saw. They're like amazing. They're like these bucolic, perfect places. Um, and so didn't seem like there was a need there as much. And then I took my last semester with these two teachers from RISD and that like changed everything because yeah. they were looking at landscape through McCarg's kind of perspective, which is about the idea that every site affects and is affected by the region around it, both ecologically, geologically, um, hy- hydrologically, but also culturally, economically sociologically and so you kind of have to look at all those layers at a much larger scale and start to understand how they kind of fall upon each other and and inform the place that you're working in and then I was like oh now this makes sense this is amazing (laughs) that scale and and then I think I fell in love with landscape even more so and I think I couldn't quite commit totally because I'd only taken this one thing and I still really (laughs) believed in the values that architecture that I kind of had found there so that's why I said okay I'll just do both (laughs) just to make sure. But in the end, I feel like I'm so happy for because I, I think when they're, I think design is at its best when all of our disciplines are working together for certain architecture and landscape together. Um, and I think even as we're approaching issues of climate change and carbon and, you know, embodied carbon and sequestration and, but even experientially and culturally, like these things work better when they're fluid and seamless. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're thinking of both of them all together at the same time, and then even, in, you know, when we're adding in engineering and um, civil and structural and, and as we started to do on our team in Rwanda, we have so many of these in-house now and allows us to kind of get really, really deeply consistent across all of our, our disciplines. So in the end, I'm really glad I did a dual degree. Initially, it was just to kind of like make sure I wasn't missing anything <laughs> because I did really fall in love with the materials of landscape. And I think that's where the, you know, like, when we have people, all the people I know who've done dual degrees, I feel like that's kind of where you land. It's like, if you're really interested and excited about structures and concrete and glass and like the durability of things and all of the exciting kind of engineering aspects that go into making those things work, then that's where you should be as in like architecture. Mm -hmm. For me, I just, the idea of temporality, of scale, of starting a process that would take on its own 
multitude of layers as it matured over time that to me is really exciting and so I think I kind of have my feet deeply in the landscape world because of that you know the idea that you know there are parks that started as fields that that became forests that become you know habitats and and offer something different in every you know five-year period of their lives is really exciting and interesting and being able to kind of like think that far ahead is a commitment to the future and for future generations which is like just that that's what gets me excited (laughs) yeah no it's 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 really exciting to to hear you talk about it because now I'm like okay now I have to go and research (laughs) these things and like dive deep into it we need all the architects to be excited about the landscape and vice versa (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean you kind of already have answered the the second question but yeah just like how how do they compare to you like how 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 does having like just an architecture degree and then having also your landscape architecture degree like how does that play out in your day-to-day life working at mass I mean I think the first thing is that it allowed me to switch my job so immediately because I, mm-hmm. I I was working at field operations and I just finished the Highline and I had just started working with Michael and others like maybe nine months prior and they had started construction. We hadn't finished design on the hospital, our first project in Rwanda. And Michael had to come back and finish his degree. He had two years left, I believe, or one or two years left and realized he's like, you know, actually designing was okay. Cause I, you know, they, he, there was so much reliance and informativeness from working directly with doctors and, and patients um, and clinicians and the government. So that all worked out, but he's like, I actually haven't built anything before. So maybe we should get someone over here who's built before. And I had just built the Highline, which wasn't really a building, but it was not really landscape either. And so I was like, I've done like a lot of the systems that are in a building. They just were like laid out flat, like super complex electrical systems and drainage and water and irrigation and like all this, all these things. So it was fairly, fairly architectonic for landscape. And I had an architecture degree. So I was like, I'll just figure it out. And, and we couldn't really find the right other person. We, we tried hiring a couple of the people and it hadn't worked out. And so I was like, well, I, I can do that. I'll try it. And so then I, yeah, then I moved over. I think the Highline opened on June 15th and I moved over on July 4th to Rwanda. So just being able to do that, having both degrees was amazing to just mm-hmm. kind of be able to, to shift. And I, I try to hire dual degrees all the time because of that, because we're interdisciplinary to be able to have people that can like shift between projects really fluidly and, and play different roles. But I would say those are all, all of that is still secondary to how we work together. And I think having both degrees allows me to, even though most of the time I'm working from the landscape perspective, I have like a huge respect for the architecture and an ability to kind of like think architecturally which helps me to like imagine how the landscape and the architecture can blend and mm-hmm. complement each other and work really well together. And on a technical level, on a carbon level, but also even on an aesthetic and experiential level, like how do we, like, what is it that we're creating? We just finished, well, we finished design, but we're in the process of building the Ellen DeGeneres campus for the Diane Fossey Foundation headquarters in Rwanda. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I just want to get that right. Um, <laughs> So that project, we were like struggling with, we had this beautiful landscape plan laid out and the buildings are amazing. They're these like droplets that kind of travel up this slightly sloped landscape and they have green roofs. And it's kind of like this idea, the idea is a bit that, you know, the idea of Diane Fossey's tent in the forest and that when you're inside, you kind of look through the structural columns and into the Mm -hmm. forest that will grow there in the future. And they begin to blend together these two 
kind of massing languages of the forest and the structure. But we were still where those two met and how they met. And and also like there was a bit of working through like how the interior spaces would work thermally. Were they inside or outside? And how would they need to be heated or not heated? Because it does get pretty chilly up in the mountains in Rwanda. And then in the end, we just determined that the actually the, the right thing is for the landscape to be able to kind of continue directly through the buildings. And so the pathways and the materiality, of the pathways actually moves right through the buildings and then out into other pathways. And it really kind of enhances that idea of the buildings and the forest kind of being of one or the idea that like intense, you know, sometimes there's not even a floor and you're just kind of like, mm-hmm. or if there is, it's temporarily there and you can really feel the ground beneath you, but that these things are both ever present, which when you're looking at a conservation landscape is so important to always you know, remember that you are amidst and in and seeking the kind of action of conservation of, of the landscape. So I think that ability to kind of like suggest, be able to kind of suggest firmly to architects and they being able to receive it and, and also to see the qualities of the architecture that, that we want to bring into the landscape and having the facility to do both and feeling comfortable with it mostly. And even those that I have that I'm working with now who might not have architecture degrees, I'm always like encouraging everybody to like be critical of the architecture not critical in a negative way but maybe critical is not the word but opportunistic like mm-hmm. what is there that landscape can share with what should we be complementing and what can we pull into the landscape and so they, they they're not all separate but they're like a, a system that works together and then even programmatically like we can never jam all the program that we want into the building and so we can support that in the landscape so I'm also also always looking for the opportunities to program the landscape with the extra program that couldn't fit into the building. And so there's just lots of ways that, you know, if we can think creatively about how those two come together. So it's almost every day, like all we, we have lots of architecture, pro- we have landscape driven projects with architecture and then, then we have architecture driven projects with lots of landscape. And, and so it's, it's always these kind of conversations happening simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for school right now, we, we just have like a, a basic architecture department. We don't really have landscape. And so I know that that's been, I guess, a struggle of mine too, is, is yeah, determining that threshold between like what is outside, what is inside and, and how to make that like a, a fluid mm-hmm. motion instead of here's your building and then, and here's the outside. <laughs> I mean, I think it also comes into systems. I think another thing that allowed for that space to open up at mass in particular was mm-hmm our first project, like so much of our DNA of how we work now is embedded in that first project and how we work through it, um, we our hospital, but there are two pieces of that. One is that it was the main driver was the reduction of airborne disease. Um, and so we have many, many systems by which we're doing that, but a lot of them deal with the threshold between inside and outside. And the more enclosed spaces you have with less ventilation, and we all know this now from COVID, mm-hmm. um, but, but we didn't, you know, like it was actually kind of specialized knowledge prior to COVID. Um, and so we were learning about it through tuberculosis, which is so prevalent, especially in, in Southern Africa, but, and, and even in, in neighboring East Africa in certain places, but, you know, the more that we can have highest levels possible of airflow and air changes per hour, the best way to do that is to be outside. So the main thing that we did there was to push mm-hmm. all the circulation into the landscape. 
And so we don't have any interior hallways, maybe very, very few, like, you know, where we had to have a connection, you know, inside yeah. from a lab to a lab, but almost all of the circulation space is on the exterior. And then we had the windows operable. So there was always this idea of like, how does the landscape come into the building and help solve? And then how does the building allow the landscape to kind of breathe through it, through wind and um, airflow? And then the second thing was Paul Farmer, who is obsessed with plants and landscape. And so, you know, I think Michael was solving away with others on the team, Dave and, and others, and solving from an architectural perspective. But I think he kept asking questions about, you know, where's the water feature going to go? And how is the landscape going to be? And where are the gardens going to be? And they're like, oh, God, we got to get a landscape architect. And so that's how myself and Maura Rockcastle were invited to join. Um, and so I think, you know, his passion about that is that it it is, you know, the landscape and the care brought to it that gives a sense of dignity to the mm -hmm. place and also sets up, I think, this expectation of the care that people will receive themselves if a place is well cared for and is beautiful and um, is calming and recharging, then I think it kind of begins to engage that level of trust of care that, that I think PIH seeks. So those two things, I think, got landscape and, and how they flow through. And so I think, you know, even when you're doing architecture, it's not always about the landscape that's on the ground. It's also about the systems and how we look for natural lighting and natural ventilation where we can and or and we you know or we use environmental systems to heat buildings if we're in temperate climates and, and all of those things like the smarter our buildings can be they'll also be lower carbon at the same time pivoting a little bit yeah you hear it in, about architecture school you hear about architects there's there's these people that eat breathe <laughs> sleep architecture that's all they do and honestly, it's it's kind of intimidating. It's a little scary for for someone going through it, especially if you're not, I wouldn't say I'm like not having doubts, but you know, you're like, okay, I have so many different opportunities, different pathways to go. And you hear about this, this cool opportunity, this cool pathway to be an architect, but it's it also is like, wow, that, that's a lot. And I have a lot of different interests that are completely unrelated to architecture. Maybe, I mean, I think you could eventually find a bridge, but not not directly related. And I was just wondering, what what is your experience with that? Do you have anything in your life that you do that is just like completely unrelated to architecture? There's so many things I do. I mean, <laughs> I, I would say I'm not one of those people that's like an amazing musician with a band on the side. Like there are those people. I met this woman through one of our projects for Standing Rock and she's a doctor. She's a doctor and a teacher, like full time. That's what she does. And she also is like an activist and doing studies and she has a band and just goes and tours half the year. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. And I, I'm not that, I'm not that amazing. Um, I'm totally awed by that. I, I'm, I mean, I think I'm, I fall a little bit into like the, the scary camp that you're thinking of, but not, <laughs> not so much of like, I think partially to get back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier, I think it's that this feeling that we are on earth for this limited period of time and and I feel lucky enough to be able to do this thing that I love doing that it feels right to spend time doing it and doesn't feel like uncomfortable at all I think that there are some things that are challenging which is it's a really long time scale for seeing something completed like the gratification is very long term like you start a project and it gets built maybe five years later right or maybe yeah. three if you're on like a really fast track project <laughs> maybe two there are some projects that we do really fast 
Um, but still it's not like making something. And so I've always made stuff on the side, like sewing and knitting and ceramics and cooking. Like, I think all of those creative things that we do that give us this other time scale of gratification is really important because otherwise it would just be such a long haul of just like looking at drawings forever and ever and like <laughs> waiting for this thing to come up and it's really nice to be able to like make something um and building like we've been renovating this house and you know doing things in the landscape and just changing the things around us but on a slightly different time scale and feeling like the goodness of things coming to fruition so that's always been a little bit there um and then I think also I have the luck of having family that is you know John is always like it's time to go have fun now <laughs> and that's good like he totally balances that out. Like even when I, before I had finished school and was just doing landscaping, I was very committed to the work, gardening, mostly like, you know, designing and, and installing mm -hmm. gardens. And he'd be like, life is for living. We're going on <laughs> vacation next week. You better be ready. And I'd be like, I got to finish the stuff. And um, so I, you know, I think we find many ways to balance our lives. And luckily he's, he's one of the key instruments to make sure that that happens and then family comes right and then that that yeah. forces the issue and I mean I think one of the things that we've tried to do at Mass as a nonprofit is just make sure that it's a long-term career that it like I think nonprofit architecture or social architecture part of what what we're hoping to prove is that it is a viable business that we can do that as our main form of architecture it doesn't have to be on the side of design you know like high design architecture that it mm -hmm. has brings as much design but also it can be a career it's not it's not a volunteer position and so we've you know been able to support people myself the first but but so many families since then and so I think that helps as well you just kind of push into the next phase of life and yeah and then suddenly it's not all architecture anymore <laughs> yeah do you think that like in this past year because of the pandemic and and spending more time at home or like working at home and when and 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 so much has happened in this past year right no one really thought a lot of things were going to happen because we were all supposed to be at home like yeah yeah in lockdown and then you know that there were there were so many big moments in in u.s history in in world history how how has this affected your life like on a personal level on a professional level are there any specific moments that that are special or that that's that stand out yes um and yes I've, we've been reflecting on this for some time but but it always feels like a new question because we're always at like a slightly different phase mm -hmm. of this experience um <laughs> and i think you know some of the early things that were really interesting and encouraging were just the idea that if we this and, and it's not this is nothing new I mean I think this has been said by many people that if we choose to make a change we can do it and I think that helps us that knowledge helps us when it comes to this challenge of climate and this idea that this was an imminent threat and so we were able to respond mm -hmm. and the problem with climate is that it is not imminent people don't see it yet they're starting to feel it through fires in California even this you know, zoonotic disease transmission is a product of that, but it feels like you could question the sources of each of these things that are distributed and, and variable shifts that are happening. But once we all start to believe in it, we actually can make a change so quickly. Like the idea that 
you know, yeah. wildlife and, you know, um, emissions, all of these things shifted drastically in a really short period of time that we can, and that people survived that, you know, at least for some period. And that to me is like, provides huge amount of hope despite all of the other things that were so challenging during the same time period and also felt hopeless. I think Black Lives Matter happening at the same time was was a gift in some ways, just in the fact that people were attending to it finally, right? There was mm -hmm. attention, there was space to bring this to people and have people have space to take it in because they had this pause from all the things that would have let it go by. Yeah. Um, and gives hope that hopefully these shifts can like continue and that that kind of attention to that is a habit now more that we need to all create that habit of witnessing and being accountable to our witnessing, you know, and all this is on the backside of just such tremendous like grief. And, and now like even just seeing what India is going through, it's, yeah. you know, hard to have positives coming out of something that is like going to be affecting so many families and people for a very long time. And I think us, I don't think it's like, it's just gonna change shapes, right? It's not mm -hmm. necessarily gonna go away anytime soon. And, and I think the other challenge is that it's gonna come in different forms and not even COVID, but other zoonotic, you know, disease transmissions as temperatures shift and as we continue to impinge on natural habitats. I mean, I think I was just insanely lucky because I usually commute to work. I take the train, but in the end, it's a four hour round trip. And I've never had the opportunity to spend so much time with my family, mm -hmm. like four extra hours a day. That's yeah, like I eat breakfast with them. I eat dinner with them and work and and somehow and and then i think the other thing that was has been really wonderful is i think realizing that this kind of communication can have effect has also brought like access and inclusiveness in a way that we didn't believe it could before or it felt like it would it was so secondary to being in person i think we believe really strongly that still it's really we're missing so much communication all the gestures and all the other things and things that we read when we're together in, in person, mm -hmm. um, we're missing that. And I, I think, you know, we've talked about this in, in, in inside of the organization and how important we need to be together. And that also we need to be with the communities that we work with. Like it's when you're, yeah. we did this, there's some breakdown of like, like 70 something percent of communication is like gestural and then 30% is tonal. And then like 7% is the words that you say. I don't know, that didn't totally add up, but it's something like that. <laughs> Um, and so like, we can get some of the facial expressions. We miss a lot of the gesture. We can get some of the tonality, but we're really like losing so much of that. And like, when we're working to like get to know people and build trust and learn people's stories, like being together and seeing sites and seeing places is really important. So we're excited to get back to that. But I think knowing that we can do it and that also like the amount of amazing webinars that the most amazing people in the country and in the world were able to like provide for people for yeah. free, like such a learning moment. And hopefully that like keeps on and that way we, you know, like people are much more able to distribute this amazing thought leadership and, and share with other people is great. So those are the hopeful things. Yeah. We, we faced a lot this year. A lot of it was negative, but I, I read that I read somewhere that, that mass, and I, I think you kind of talked a little bit about it earlier with the Butaro District Hospital, just that like Mass has been a little more prepared for, for this situation, I guess, than, hmm. than a lot of other places in terms of one, you, you're trying to open up the spaces and, and really ventilate them and, and make them safe and healthy, healthy spaces that 
translate very well for something today, like this mm-hmm. pandemic. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's true that that mass has been some, I mean, I don't think anyone was completely prepared, but I think that that mass has done a good job in, in both the, the work sense as well as just the, the infrastructure of the company itself. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I myself, cause I lead the landscape team. My team is, is spread out mm-hmm. between, um, for, for most of the projects. So I have some projects in Rwanda. So I'm on the phone. I was on the phone for zoom every morning anyway, and, yeah. and anyone else who was doing cross office projects. Um, and so I do think like we were used to that to some extent. Um, but we always, we were very intentional about getting together. Like we have yeah. two retreats a year, one in Rwanda, one in the States. We don't all move both mm-hmm. directions, but at least all the leadership. And I used to go to Rwanda four times a year. I haven't been there in a year and a half now um, to see the people, to be with people basically. Yeah. Um, and so I think there are some pieces that are missing. And I think everybody feels the strain of that because I think we need to be social together. Like we talk about work all day long, but we're not social in Zoom. Yeah. We don't have the before and afters or hanging out in the kitchen or going out to drinks or having lunch together or having coffee. Like all of those things, eating, sharing food mostly, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> but all those things that like, you know, you get to know people as people, which is so important because it gives you the, it gives you the kind of spirit of gentleness with each other when you're working because yeah. we are all people together. And, um, and I think we are super conscious to try to keep that up as we're working over Zoom, but it's, it's just, and it's, it's not to say that spirit of gentleness is like decreased because we're not seeing each other in person, but it's, we have a lot of people that have come on that we don't even know yet. Like, yeah. you know, we have someone that we hired last August that I've seen twice. We go up and hang out in Boston occasionally. Um, but I think just developing bonds and communications and shared interests that, that kind of help keep the work going too is something that, that, that we miss, despite the fact that we're really good at Zoom already. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I, we, prior to this, you know, for around five years, we were co-teaching and in the end organizing um, with two amazing, amazing doctors at Harvard School of Public Health like a one or two weeks long course for design for airborne disease control. So like thinking about that, it was really all around tuberculosis for the most part. But, you know, we did USAID was doing like TB assessments in countries all across the world where where we have the worst TB and like India, Georgia, Brazil, those are the ones that I went to, but my colleagues went to a number of other places and did assessments of multiple facilities in each of those countries. So we're like very used to looking at particularly healthcare settings, you know, how do we change the shapes of spaces and or like that are existing or, you know, or give advising on how they should be built anew, but mostly retrofitting existing spaces so that they're safer. So like that mode of thinking and understanding, you know, how many air changes per hour do you need? And what are the like 15 different ways to achieve that? And do we need to clean air in this space? Do we need to do ultraviolet? air cleansing is that going to be effective so like we we had a facility with that before this came along i mean this is at a totally different scale though like those yeah. are that's one disease and in, in 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 some few places and this doesn't affect schools and like you know places of eating and places of worship and so this is quite different and but i think mm-hmm. you know I, I do think that people were excited to like take something that they had learned about 
before, but only applied in one condition to just see like, how could that help out in, yeah. in these other conditions? So I was originally drawn to, to mass because of the prioritization of social impact and activism that maybe isn't really as visible from other architecture firms. And it, it feels really powerful to, to listen to and to read about a group of architects who like really genuinely care about people. And I was just wondering, how has it been to be a part of a team so committed to using architecture and design as a way to engage in an act social change? The answer to this question has to be, it's amazing. <laughs> like <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's like the team that we have. I mean, I think that's another piece of like what's been missing for us all during this time is that we haven't had those side conversations to like continue to get to know the people that we know really, really well, but even get to know our newer people because they're all so amazing. And like that level of commitment and then the ways that they have expressed that before coming to mass and, you know, the skills and ways that they are thinking about that through all different types of projects from like urban design to landscape to architecture to exhibitions or film or writing like there are people doing all of these things and when we're just talking about projects like we don't get that stuff and it is always amazing like Christian Benimana who's head of our office in Rwanda there were very few architects there was no school of architecture when we got there and so everyone had to go out of overseas or out of country to to get trained and he went to China he was chosen of one of two people he learned Chinese for a year and then learned architecture in Chinese for five years. So like, he's amazing. And he's just inspirational and he's brilliant. And, but getting to know things like that and like the capacities of the people that we work with is always inspiring. It's always, I mean, I think it just helps that we can take that mission alignment as a given. Like we don't have to have a conversation about like, do you want to work on this kind of project and get the best possible outcome? Like that's kind of a given. And I think we're always seeking out our other partners and other disciplines that, that have that as well. I think it's also the biggest challenge in some ways for us because we always are like, how much more can we do? There's no complacency. Like we don't rest and not in the same way of like, we work too hard as architects. That might be true occasionally, but we're trying to get better and better at that consciously, but more so that we're also coming from like startup into like a point where we're maturing slightly. We're 10 years in, we have 150 plus designers. We have, we started a construction team. So now we have like a thousand plus people employed as part of our contracting group, also nonprofit. So we have to, we've had to like shift intentionally to manage that growth but but also like even if we hadn't we'd still be like trying to rejigger things like how do we get better how do we do this better how do we like make sure we're serving the team better how do we do the you know how do we get to the community in a more more useful way so there's no rest there's just constant like improvement and I hope that doesn't change you know everything is always changing around us and so the only way to like be the most responsive and most useful is to be like in the current moment I mean, it's super inspiring as, as a student, you know, to, to see that, that this is happening and that, you know, from the very start, you were able to, to get traction. And I think a lot of people believe in, in what math stands for and, and the, the process and, and the way they go about their design work. I just love reading all the articles and, and listening to all the TED Talks and everything that's going on with it. 
Well, I was telling somebody I heard the other day that Frank Gary, my mom was telling me, and I haven't pulled up the article yet. She just told me like a couple of days ago that she read something where he said that now that he's done many, many, many buildings, he's going to shift his focus to socially engaged design because that's what's most important. I was like, yes, like Andy. if we can convince Frank Gary, then we can convince anybody. Like, I mean, I'm not saying we convinced him, but I think the idea that like, yeah. You know, the idea is like, this is mainstream. It's not, it's not a side thing. This is yeah. how we all should be working and thinking. And so it's really great to, you know, have the events of the world and have, you know, examples of how it can work is fantastic. And there are like so many other amazing firms doing work now. It's great. Okay. To end right. off, I have a couple rapid fire questions. Whatever comes to mind, some might be one word, some might be a sentence or two. It's up to you. Okay. Okay. Morning person or night owl? Both. Coffee or tea? Coffee and tea. <laughs> Mountains or beach? Beach. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Favorite movie? The Dark Side of the Heart. Where do you feel most at home? In the wet woods of the Pacific Northwest. Best advice you've received? Life is for a living. And then the last one, I'm 22. And if you could go back and tell 22-year-old Sierra one thing, what would it be? Take your time. Uh, test things out. It's always good to take a test drive. And don't be afraid to shift direction. Thank you so, so much for this. This has been one of the best hours ever. Ah. <laughs> um, it's been so inspiring. And I appreciate it so much that you, you've taken the time out of your day to, to talk with us. So. Well, thanks for having me and just edit out all the silly parts. And, <laughs> but no, it's been, I love the questions and I, I, I do, you know, like I've lectured a bunch and when I lecture with students, I like to like try to include as much of that part, the early part as possible. Mm -hmm. Cause it's, it's not always easy to see where it's all headed and it makes every decision feel like excruciating. But I think if you have a sense of of intention and where you want to get, then it, all the decisions along the way are not going to matter so, so much. And so it's like helpful to just relax a little bit because it can be, it can be challenging. Like it's, yeah. it's a lot to take on. So anyway, yes. it's always good to be like, you know, I, and then also like, you don't, there's not one place to end up, right? Like math mm -hmm. didn't even exist when I started and it's where I knew I wanted to be in school. Like all my projects would have been mass projects when I was mm -hmm. in school, but but it didn't exist. And so, you know, it's even good to imagine just the, the thing that you want to do. And then hopefully over time, you can make it come into being. Whole Architect was created and produced by Amy Larimer, Nico Rucker, and Triana Hernandez in association with Stanford Architecture. We invite you to join us for our next episode a conversation between our very own Aryan Singh and the iconic I.M. Qadri from I.M.K. Architects. See you next time, wonderful people. <laughs>